In our last episode, we discovered the world of New England before it was New England, through the eyes of the Wampanoag people, who we will return to in several future episodes. But now we're going to see the world of New England through the eyes of the English in the decades before the Plymouth settlers were to reach their destination. A surprisingly rich history, and one that's almost completely omitted from grade school textbooks. In the second half of the 16th century, in Elizabethan England, prominent merchant groups began to emerge, seeking to capitalize, perhaps monopolize trade in other parts of the world. The best example would be the Muscovy Company, set up to trade with different parts of Russia and the different Baltic Sea nations. The backbone of these merchant outfits would be sturdy sailors, great shipbuilders, hardworking fishermen, and brave and intelligent navigators. But the money class had an interesting top layer to it. In this time, you have the high nobility, who seemingly never need to lift a finger for the entirety of their lives based on who they were born to. But at the mid to bottom of the noble class, you have these sirs who have to get by in the world based on their charm, their good looks, their personality, their skill with a sword or a sail. Sir Humphrey Gilbert would be one of these men, a man worthy of admiration had he never set foot in Ireland or had anything to do with the island. And that's a topic for a different podcast, recorded by somebody else. Anyway, in June of 1578, Sir Humphrey Gilbert receives a grant to plant a colony in North America. And wherever he put boots on the ground, he would receive the rights to exclusivity 600 miles in every direction from that settlement. Over the next couple of years, he himself and others he hires explore the coastlines of Newfoundland, square on over to Maine. In 1582, he kicked around the idea of starting a huge colony in what he called Norumbega, a vague descriptor of anywhere from modern-day Maine to even the inside of upstate New York. Instead, in 1583, he officially takes possession of Newfoundland, which had already been populated, of course, by the Beothuk people that we learned about last season, and a huge number of seasonal fishermen, many from England, but many from other places. He gathered a number of them together, had them swear an oath to himself, and as far as he was concerned, he now had a colony. Newfoundland, of course, persists to this day. But Gilbert, not so much. He dies at sea, and Queen Elizabeth then gives all his rights and privileges in the New World over to his half-brother, the more famous, at least today anyway, Sir Walter Riley. Riley, with his new package of privileges, then became the primary sponsor advertiser and the source of legitimacy for a planned colony that would become known as Roanoke, and to us, the lost colony of Roanoke. A subject must, much like Plymouth you know a lot about already, which is why it will not be featured here on the other States of America History podcast. Or maybe it will, we'll see. So the 1580s came and went, and so did Roanoke. But Riley's claim, because of these attempts, nonetheless remained legitimate. And so in the intervening years, small English fishing and fur trading operations, operating off the coast of the mainland and not Newfoundland, remained a clandestine affair, few in number. At any moment, Riley or someone who he sells the rights to could find a way to tax them along the coast or tax their operations back in England or sue them out of existence. And so as much as the Gilberts and the Rileys helped to spurn discovery of the New World by the English, they held back development in some ways, holding claims to large areas they had no ability to capitalize on. And so we skip ahead to the year 1602 to a curious expedition led by Bartholomew Gosnold. 
Speculation kicks in high here. It's thought that he may have sailed to the New World under Sir Walter Riley, which makes sense because in the English view, he was going to now sail right into Riley's domain. The very concrete connection that Gosnold has to Riley and his family is that on board, he had Bartholomew Gilbert, Sir Humphrey Gilbert's son, Riley's half-brother, and maybe even Riley Gilbert, his other son. The primary source for this expedition is written by John Brereton, who was actually with Gosnold. The name of his work is The Brief and True Relation of the Discovery of the North Part of Virginia in 1602. Yes, at this time, there is no New England. Even in the English eyes, it's called Norumbega or Northern Virginia. The term New England is actually going to come from a surprise source many years after 1602. Gosnold left England in March, and he hit the coast of Maine by May. Here he probably interacted with the Mi'kmaq people, and Brereton's description of the natives of this area is very similar to Champlain's own from around this time. That shockingly, the natives already knew a lot of European words. Some of them were wearing European clothing. Some of them were using European boats. And as I've said in other episodes, it's very clear that independent traders had long been along the coast of Maine, made themselves a little profit trading with the natives, and then went back home and told nobody about where they made their money. Of course you wouldn't. That's your income. But here we see the stereotype of the clueless native falling through, where they're all full of heart and they're one with nature, but they're clueless when it comes to the evil nature of other men and therefore holy but gullible. Nope. The natives of Maine knew exactly what the Europeans were doing, what they had, what they wanted to trade for. They were as intelligent and industrious as any other people on the planet. The account mentions how friendly the natives of Maine were, and Gosnold and his people were actually invited to stay and settle among them, start his colony there. But he wanted to settle a little further south. The English at this time realized that the weather wasn't exactly the same in Europe at the same latitude, right? I live in upstate New York. It's at the same latitude as parts of France. Let me tell you, it's not France here, okay? And so he trolled the coast of New England heading south, trading knives, bells, mirrors, and beads for pelts. Now, mirrors might throw you off, and I think I've probably mentioned this before, but imagine going your whole life without ever seeing yourself in a mirror, like a clean reflection of yourself. Then all of a sudden, somebody hands you this, this little light, little light piece of glass. And then there you are. Ooh, who's that guy? You know, think of how many times you look in a mirror day to day. You've gone your whole life, never looked in a mirror. Suddenly there's one in front of you. You have it in your hand. You can see yourself. You can fix your hair if you want. How much would you give to keep that little square or that little circle? It doesn't matter the shape. The mirror at this time is a wonderfully light, portable, and easily tradable item. Another man who was with Gosnold, Gabriel Archer, wrote an account who had similar very pleasant things to say about the natives uh, in northern New England. Now we're a number of minutes into the podcast and you, you're probably saying to yourself, okay, but why is Gosnold important? Why, why are you making me listen to this? Well, here we go. He's coming down the coast, right? He finds this large area that's just full of cod. They catch tons of it. Right off this great cape of land, he names it Cape Cod, the name that still applies to it to this day. After that, his two ships land on an island that's seemingly full of wild grapes, like a vineyard. And he names it Martha's Vineyard, after his infant daughter who had passed away, now an eternal namesake. Down here, though, he found the natives, who were probably the Wampanoag, to be a bit different. They were less experienced with the Europeans, maybe not experienced at all. They didn't have the same European words to throw around. 
They didn't have the same dress, the same items already. They certainly had crossed some sort of threshold whereby they were outside the range of normal European contact. Here on the island, he found that they had skins to trade, bits of raw copper. They had tobacco, the supply of which was not steady in England at this time. But the natives were also very desperate for the new and interesting things the Europeans had, and they took to stealing from Gosnold. And so clearly this would not be the place to plant a colony of just a few dozen men. So after a short while, he left. Continuing to sail on, he found a small little island that the natives probably called Cuddyhunk. And today we call Cuddyhunk. But he named it Elizabeth Island, or Elizabeth's Isle, after his sister. And this becomes the basis for the Elizabeth Island chain that Cuddyhunk Island is now part of. The island, quite small, seemingly had no native population. Not on a permanent basis, anyway. I'm sure the resources of the island were used seasonally. They landed on this beautiful island. Going inland just a little bit, they found a huge pond. And at the center of this huge pond was an even smaller island. This was a hole in the bottom of the sea situation. There was an island with a body of water in it that contained an island within that. And here Gosnell decided he could build a safe storehouse in the center of his colony. The island both having great harbors on the outside, a layer of defense, and then fresh water source on the inside. And so he and his men immediately planted European seeds, European crops. And to their amazement, everything grew like weeds. Gabriel Archer said that all the men were ravished at the beauty and delicacy of this sweet soil. Our other source, Brereton, confirms what Archer said, claiming that the best farmland in England would be considered barren compared to the soil on Elizabeth Island. Very promising stuff. But this brings us back to the topic that I should have addressed right away. Why is Gosnold making a colony? What is going on here? What is the purpose of this colony? Well, if you listen to last season of the show, you'll know that early on, when the French considered what we would call New England to be their Acadia, many of the French fishermen who would take the same routes and fish in the same places as the English fishermen we're learning about now, realized that having something more than your typical fishing colony, where fishermen show up during the correct seasons, they do their drying, they pack their boats and they go home, would be beneficial in helping to reduce costs, provide fresh food based on people who would be living in the colony year-round, growing crops, help with native relations, and solidify claims to certain areas. So Gosnold wanted to start one of these, a colony that would swell for the fishing season. But like in Newfoundland around this time, in the winter, it wouldn't go down to nobody. There would still be a core left there which would provide many advantages. For one thing, when these fishing operations would show up along the coasts of what we now call New England all the way up to Newfoundland, sometimes their fishing racks and the places where they would stage their drying operations the year previous would be already occupied by a different group. And that would lead to conflict, sometimes violent conflict. Well, if you have a year-round population, that's not going to be an issue. You have already staked out your little territory. Also, Considering the farmland is so good and you brought European crops, you'd have a supply of fresh food. You could open up better relations with the Native Americans, which would definitely help you in also dabbling in the fur trade. And then these people who would live year-round in the colony, maybe maybe for their whole lives, but probably just for a couple years to make money, because it was basically all men at this time. It wasn't meant to be a self-propagating colony. You wouldn't have to transport them back and forth. And they would be able to feed themselves and enrich themselves in the new world. So the English and the French have the same idea around this time. They're going to start having something a little more than a summer colony. I know I'm being repetitive. But this setup is very different than what we would see in Roanoke 
decades before, or in Plymouth, decades afterward. The business, in this case, came first. The men came first. Just sturdy, young, or middle-aged men who could do the work and be left there over winter. In my mind, it seems like the more stable, reasonable plan. Start with how you're going to survive, how you're going to make your money, how you're going to make this venture profitable, and then you can start bringing over families and making something we would recognize as a more traditional community or village. And I already have to correct myself, because Roanoke actually was kind of a, a two-stage colony, and the first stage was this just group of men to start setting up shop and looking for ways to make money. So, I'm already wrong. Anyway, in my mind, this seems like the more sensible way to start a colony. Start small, invest a little bit, find the profit, and grow it from there. And yet, these kinds of colonies just pale in comparison in terms of historical importance or just the records that are left or or the current population of, of what became of these settlements to these early ventures that just dumped dozens of families along the coast and said, figure it out. Such would be the case with Plymouth. And to a lesser extent, because they were a little more prepared, the Massachusetts Bay Company. I think it's just a, a rule of nature where experience and wisdom and knowledge does not prevail. You just dump a bunch of people somewhere and nature takes its course. You got men, you got women, sparks fly. We know what happens. If you've seen the movie Idiocracy, you know that it doesn't doesn't really take planning or intelligence to create more people. It's mostly a waste down affair. But I digress. So the backbone of Gosnold's colony on a little island inside of a pond, inside of a little island off the Atlantic coast, would be fishing operations, drying out fish, bringing it back to Europe, a cheap source of protein that would be supplemented by fur trading if they could. And believe it or not, the stuff that Gosnold really packed his ship with was sassafras. Yes, at this time, sassafras was seen as a, as a medicine. It could be used in medicines anyway to cure many different diseases, or at least treat many different diseases. The big one, of course, was the French pox, which we know today as syphilis, which is actually one of the few diseases that actually moved from the natives of the New World back to the Old World through the Spaniards, of course, showing up in the port towns of Spain as early as 1494, 1493, somewhere in there very quickly. And like we just talked about, people are people. They get into things with one another. And as you can imagine, it's spread. I don't mean to be so crass and keep going back to these kinds of subjects. It just, it's coming up for some reason in our story. And I just had a tooth pulled like four days ago and I'm, I'm just, I'm just an angry, bitter person right now in constant pain. I don't know. My mind's in the gutter. But, um... As much as I'm apologizing, I'm probably not going to edit this out, so I don't really care that much. But let's get back down to specifics on Gosnold's colony. June 5th, 1602, they're busy building their storehouse. Fifty armed natives arrive on Cuddyhunk Island. Some sources say this is the Mi'kmaq who they interacted with earlier, but the location of where Cuddyhunk Island is, Elizabeth Island as they called it, would probably indicate that it's the Wampanoag or their close relatives, as yet other sources would... um agree on. Brereton records that he approached them as the representative of Godsnold's people, and he slapped his chest as a sign of peace, and he presented his weapon as an either-or. Did you come in peace, or did you come for war? Lucky for all the parties involved, the natives returned the gesture of peace. Brereton and the rest of Godsnold's men, they communicated with the natives through signs and gestures that would be reciprocated on the other side. They didn't have the, 
the semi-shared vocabulary that the Mi'kmaq had further north. Actually, further evidence that this was not the Mi'kmaq. The same amount of French, English, and especially Basque words just aren't present. They're too far south. After this interaction, the natives would hang around. They would leave at night, but they would come around periodically. About two days after their first encounter, Gosnold's men share a meal with the natives. They sit around a fire together, and the natives share with them tobacco, many of the English never having it before or knowing really how to ingest it. And so the natives found it quite funny uh, smoking tobacco for the first time. And if any of you unfortunately have ever smoked a cigarette or cigar, which you shouldn't do, the first time you do it, it can be humorous. So the natives got a little joke out of that. But Gosnold's men had mustard, which is something the natives have not had yet. And so for the first time ever, the Englishmen give the natives mustard to try out. And just like tobacco, it's an acquired, you got to get used to mustard. So to have a really strong mustard for the first time ever, the natives puckered their faces like they just ate a ghost pepper. And of course, the English were very amused by that. This is an informal thought, but basically, dudes messing with other dudes is pretty universal. You go anywhere in the world, it's what we do, especially if there's no Netflix. On another date, one native who got to know the English fairly well brought around his wife and daughter to see, just to see the English, which means a couple things. One, he felt safe enough to bring his family to see this group of strangers whom he'd become somewhat familiar with. But also that the English were such an oddity for this area of New England that he would bring his family just to look at them. I'm a teacher. I meet new people all the time. I don't bring my wife just to look at the new guy I met because people kind of look the same to us. We've kind of seen what people look like. But the English were just odd enough that they were kind of a sideshow, a freak show, comparable to if me and my wife were at a restaurant and I noticed a guy sitting across from us at another table had like six fingers on one hand. Now, I couldn't resist saying to my wife very quietly, honey, look over there very quietly. Don't be obvious. That dude has six fingers on his hand. And so from this little bit of the narrative, we can see that, yes, the natives felt some safety around Gosnold's men, but they were still incredibly foreign and strange to the people of southern New England. Very different than the main coast. It's these details that I've been harping on the last couple seasons, because often we don't actually really know when certain Europeans group really started showing up in different parts of the uh, East Coast of what is now the United States. Because it was usually private traders who wanted to keep their trade clandestine. And so little details like this helped to kind of fish out, okay, were the English down in this area very often? Probably not. This is 1602. And all signs from the nativist point to, they're still an oddity. And in the midst of all this, Gosnold is harvesting sassafras. Remember, he already got a bunch of cod off the coast of Cape Cod, for which he named, and a couple natives actually help him cut down trees, probably in return for the metal tools they were using. But this is where things take a turn real quick. A couple of Gosnold's men, they steal a dugout canoe. They find it. They just find it on the beach and they take it because for them, that's an oddity. That's something they might take back to England and be like, look at this thing, which is something that happened before. The, the many times native uh, watercraft especially were taken back to England or Paris and shown off. So Gosnold's men take this canoe, and not too long afterward, a small group of natives chase two Englishmen along the beach who are looking for shellfish. The Englishmen, probably running on pure fear and adrenaline, manage to keep a pretty good distance from the natives, but not before one of them is shot by an arrow. Historians believe this second event was probably caused by the first event. The theft of the dugout canoe led to the change in relationship 
between the natives who were visiting the island and Gosnold's men. But that's speculation. Who knows? But now Gosnold, again, he's not looking to make a new nation. He's not even looking to make a sprawling colony that we'll know later as like Massachusetts Bay. He's not looking to make a uh, Virginia colony. He now is assessing all this new information. His boats are full of goods. So the money is already essentially made. There's been this one violent attack. And he has noticed things have gone missing, implying that the natives have, or at least some of the natives, have been stealing these valuable metal goods that they otherwise would have no access to. Finally, in assessing his provisions, he noticed that he really didn't have enough supplies, enough food to last over winter for the planned 20 men who would stay behind. One of those 20 being Gosnold himself, while Bartholomew Gilbert would bring back all of their sassafras and organize a return to Gosnold's colony. And so when he gave his men the choice, there were still 12 guys who are willing to overwinter. But in his risk-reward calculations, Gosnold finally concluded that it was time for everyone to go home. The entire colony was to be packed up, and on June 12, 1602, they headed back to merry old England. And talk about perfect timing on their return. The historian Charles Knowles Bolton records, they dropped anchor on July 23rd at Exmouth, with the last loaf of bread and the last drop of water gone. But then the legal troubles began. As it turns out, Sir Walter Riley was not happy about this expedition, nor had he sanctioned it despite his nephews, or at least one nephew, being present. Riley argued that he had exclusivity, or a monopoly, on the resources coming from the area in which Gosnold went. Now, if you look at the original rights given to uh, Humphrey Gilbert, his half-brother, that 600-mile zone from Roanoke would actually reach Cuddyhunk Island. Although I've seen some historians say otherwise, but I own a computer. I can calculate distance with it. And in a straight line over the ocean, Cuddyhunk Island falls within that 600-mile range. Furthermore, Riley was still exercising his rights to this area. He At least he claims in this very same year, 1602, he sent out an expedition under Captain Samuel Mace, who returned with his own cargo full of sassafras. And so Riley immediately seized his nephew's share of Gosnold's load, and then proceeded to sue Gosnold for the entirety. Gosnold, not without his own connections, he was the um, first cousin once removed to Sir Francis Bacon, would have the ability to fight this lawsuit, and I'm not exactly sure what the outcome ended up being. It was probably some sort of settlement. But now let's move on to legacies. For one, as we mentioned, the place names, Cape Cod, Martha's Vineyard, the Elizabeth Island chain. But here's a sneakier one that'll come up in a very a soon-to-be-published episode. The Gosnold-Riley affair back in England demonstrated the need to get Sir Walter Riley out of the way. And I meant that to sound ominous. And we will see how this will spiral out into creating the New England that we all know and love. But the most direct and important legacy probably lies with Gosnold himself, a name you might recognize. As it turns out, his experience in this short-lived colony that he founded would inspire him to imagine grander things further south. And he became the prime mover, as some historians say, or the first mover into putting together the Virginia Company of London. And he did much towards guaranteeing a royal charter for that company. And then he was a big part of the financing, and then he himself and his extended family became the leadership of the very early settlement of Jamestown, the place where Gosnold would die as many did those early years. 
So again, because of his short-lived colony, we see the defeat of Sir Walter Riley, which we'll cover in our next episode. We see the founding of the Virginia Company of London, the settlement of Jamestown, and thus the beginning of the American South, and permanent inhabitation of the English of the North American continent. Oh, now Gosnold seems pretty important. What is colony? As important as it is because of the things it led to, directly or indirectly, is the colony itself could have been very important had Gosnell just decided to stay and things gone his way and relations with the natives worked out. What could have been? A lot of this podcast is about what could have been. So now I'll leave you with a quote from the historian Arthur R. Railton. Had the men stayed, Cuddyhunk would now be a national shrine, the first English settlement in America. Jamestown and Plymouth would be denied their glory. And this is where I leave you. Thank you for listening to the Other States of America History Podcast. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, on YouTube. Find my Goodreads account if you don't want to wait till the end notes to figure out my sources. I'm Eric Giannis. Thank you for listening.